somebody who does the confession step and has no intention of really changing, really, is like somebody who goes to the mikvah, the ritual bath, with a lizard in their hand, aka a non-kosher animal. Yeah. So you're going to the sacred space holding something that's going to completely invalidate the experience. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Do you believe people can change? Do you believe you can change? In a lot of ways, the religious life is about this question. We read, we meditate, we might pray, all to become more than we are now, better than we are. And of course, this question pops up in our minds, especially when we fall short or fail to meet our own standards. To talk about this process of change, we use a word that lots of us don't like very much, repentance. It's a word that has taken on a lot of baggage and lost some of the meaning it once held, which might simply be to turn your heart in a different direction or align our will with God's. So, at the heart of repentance is this question, can people change? Today on In Good Faith, we'll talk about that and what it really takes to change with Rabbi Daniel Ruttenberg, author of the upcoming book on repentance and repair, making amends in an unapologetic world. Rabbi Ruttenberg was named by Newsweek as a rabbi to watch. She serves as scholar in residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. She's the author of seven other books about a range of topics from Jewish feminism to parenting. And before her ordination from the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies in 2008, she worked as a freelance writer and has, in the years since, served as rabbi and educator at Tufts and Northwestern Universities. She lives in the Chicago area with her spouse and three children. This new book, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, interprets the work of Maimonides, a medieval Jewish philosopher for the modern day, describing a more holistic approach to repentance or change. Here is Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg speaking about how the idea for this book came to her. This book really began not long after Me Too broke. Um, a journalist I know had written to me asking for some guidance about the question of you know, all these famous men who had been named as perpetrators of sexual misconduct, of right, sexual abuse. Right. And this question about how do we know when they've done enough work? How do we know when or how or what to think about their apologies? All of that were some of the questions that our culture as a whole had begun to ask. And so this journalist that I know um, emailed me asking some questions. They were working on a piece. And I responded with a couple of paragraphs basing my work on Maimonides, as one does if one is a rabbi who is immersed <laughs> in the work of repentance from a Jewish point of view. My friend, the journalist, wrote the piece. And as these things go, you know, maybe a sentence of mine was integrated into the piece. And when it came out, I saw the the original things that I had written because it was, you know, part of the email thread. And I thought, maybe I'll just tweet out this stuff that I had written because it seems relevant to this larger cultural conversation. And so I wrote this thread and it said, I want to talk about how repentance and atonement and forgiveness 
are all really different concepts. And then I started this thread kind of going through the steps of repentance and the work and where forgiveness factors in and all of this. And the response I got was overwhelming. And I realized then that these ideas that seemed somewhat intuitive to me as a Jew were landing in this place where people did not have a vocabulary. Mm. And they were hitting all sorts of spots where our culture just, this is like a black hole in our cultural conversation. And um, people just kept responding to the thread with more questions. And what about this? And what about this? And so I'd respond to that. And that would open up more questions. And so that led to an op-ed, which led to more questions. And just, I, I kept finding that this issue about repentance, both on the individual interpersonal level and on the social structural level, kept touching this place of uncertainty and lack of clarity in our larger conversation. And so that's when I realized that there was more to say and that there was more to do here. What you're talking about is so integral to being human. I mean, as simple as... From the, from the fact that we literally step on each other's toes by accident, all the way up to most grievous crimes and, and even institutional or national offenses that happen. It's just mm-hmm. we will each hurt people and we will each be hurt in our lifetime. I guess there's nobody who, who is not affected by the subject matter of your book. I mean, I really believe that. that listen, we, are, we all cause harm, whether or not we intend to. We all have been harmed, we've all been hurt, and we're all bystanders to harm. We all see other people hurt other people, both on the interpersonal level and on the larger cultural level. And so figuring out how to talk about accountability, how to talk about repentance, how to talk about repair, and how to talk about what's fair to ask of who and how is is really, really critical. The whole idea that it's not just this one thing, that there are separate components. Here are the five steps that you've sort of separated down into naming and owning harm, starting to change, restitution and accepting consequences, apology. Interesting that that comes later in the process Mm -hmm. and finally making different choices. Let's talk about naming and owning harm. You give such concise, visceral examples throughout that it's worth reading just to consider the the range of human experience. But what is this naming and owning harm? Because this is not from the victim's point of view at first saying, you did this. This is actually from the perpetrator. The person who caused harm must own that harm fully. They must say, I did this. I and it's not, I meant well, I really had good intentions. This is not something that your publicist wrote. This is not posted on Instagram, right? This is something you need to, I mean, maybe it's posted on Instagram, but this is, you need to really name clearly without the, you know, hedging or the trying to get around it and making yourself look good and any of that, right? You can let it go. I caused harm. I did this thing. Own the deeper stuff going on, right? Dan Harmon, uh, when he was talking about uh, his sexually harassing uh, one of the writers on Community, said, if I had had any respect for women, 
I would not have done this. Right? That's owning really what he did. Um, somebody else might say, I was acting from a place of trauma. Right? Name it. Name it. Um, not hedging, not trying to, to no, nothing. Right? And you absolutely have to do this confession work in front of anyone who was impacted or who heard it. So if you said something racist in a staff meeting, then definitely everybody in that room has to hear your confession, right? Whether you're posting it on the, uh, the Slack channel for your organization or whether next week you're coming back and saying, listen, guys, I, I want to just reflect on what happened last week or whether you catch yourself in the moment and you own it and you say, ooh, I just heard myself say that out loud. That was not okay. That was actually really racist, right? I mean, you can do it right in the moment if you if you can. And it's praiseworthy to do it even in a public way. Yeah. You're telling people that you are struggling, that you are on a journey of growth and change, that you're asking for people to help you. It's a way of asking people to, to help hold you. And it's a way of inviting the community into your process. And it's an end to the gaslighting that mm. the victim might experience, right? The, the person who was impacted uh, gets to see the reality and the truth of their experience named. Especially if it's an interpersonal reaction or an interpersonal offense, it's so easy to say, well, you know, he said, she said, or, um, oh, I'm sure you misunderstood that, or they are such a nice person, or the actual owning of it is also validating to the person who's been harmed. Right, right. That it's, it is somebody is, else is affirming the truth of their experience. It's none of this questioning themselves which so often happens, like, am I crazy? Did that really happen? Like, no, that really happened. And it's a way of affirming to the community, like, yeah, I did that thing. No, they, this person was telling the truth. You, Yes, of course you should believe them, right? It's about being clear. Uh, and it's about um, power, right? It's about naming what's going on with uh the power dynamic here. And I want to talk in a moment about countries or institutions, but this may seem like the most naive question, but I'll just go ahead and be naive. Why is it important to repent or to, to change or make such, if I have offended someone, why don't I just say, hey, sorry, get over it? Because oh, if we assume that other people matter if we assume <laughs> we always think that should be a given if we assume that other people's experience matters that if we assume that other people's feelings that their pain matters that their suffering matters that their wholeness that their healing matters right then we have to do repentance work and because we have to own fully what we did and do everything we can 
to try to repair the hole in the cosmos that we created. And if we care about creating a more whole world, a more just world, then we need to stop pretending that harm is not happening and to stop being harm doers and start being people who are part of the solution. And if we do not do the work of repentance and repair, we will continue to cause the same kinds of harm again and again and again. We will find new and innovative ways <laughs> to, to cause injury and pain and suffering in new situations until we deal with it, until we do the repair work. You talk about the both the successes as well as a partial failure of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Committee, which which I was so thrilled and amazed that such work was even happening at the time at the end of apartheid. But you talk about a way in which it did not complete the circle, so to speak. Can mm-hmm. you can you speak to that? So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was part of the negotiation at the end of apartheid in South Africa in the early mid-90s was in many ways so powerful. It was an opportunity for people who were harmed by apartheid to hear the truth being told about the vicious, horrific, horrific crimes against humanity and human rights abuses that were perpetrated by the apartheid government. Um, They listened to horrible harm doers testify about what they had done. Um, It was complicated. The whole decisions about who is testifying and under under what conditions and all of that was was complex. But that confession, that bringing to light what was done was important. And um, as Archbishop Tutu said, you know, anybody who wanted to pretend that they didn't know what was going on, like now they know. Everybody knows what happened. Mm. But part of the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was about formulating uh, reparations including significant taxes on those who had benefited from apartheid that were going to be used specifically to help those who had been harmed by apartheid. The, the Basically taxing the white population and using it to uplift the black population of the country, uh, to put it in stark terms. Um, There's more nuance than that, but... Um, And there were all sorts of programs that were supposed to happen and there were supposed to be financial reparations for victims and all sorts of things. And the bottom line is they didn't follow through with reparations. The government did not do all of the things that they were advised to do by the TRC. And so we had this powerful confession step, incredibly powerful confession step, but the beginning to change, creating new systems and structures for the country that could upend white supremacy did not happen, right? Uh, amends, like real financial reparations that are going to have a meaningful impact on the black 
communities in Africa did not happen, right? Apology, you know, that's complex. I don't, you know, did it happen or not? But the, the, the show me the money piece of this, the systemic and structural changes that needed to happen in the country didn't happen. The, you know, instead, the, there was like a a lighter uh, uh, levy that happened that wound up benefiting everybody instead of uh, just those who were most impact, you know, the people who were specifically impacted by apartheid. They wound up helping white people, too. And so South Africa as a country was not transformed in the ways that it needed to. And there's still today more inequality, more racial inequality than there should be, absolutely. <laughs> um, so if we could as a result. If we could bring that nationwide thing, uh, if it can be encapsulated in a situation between two individuals, what happens when there has been an, a, an owning, I did this, an apology, I'm sorry, but there is no change. There is no uh, repair undertaken. That is not repentance. <laughs> That's pretty succinct. Uh, that is not repentance. Um, and Maimonides, who is the medieval philosopher whose ideas undergird this whole book and all of the ideas we've been talking about, um, says that somebody who does the confession step and has no intention of really changing, really, uh, is like somebody who goes to the mikveh, the ritual bath, with a lizard in their hand, a.k.a. a non-kosher animal. Yeah. So you're going to the sacred space holding something that's going to completely invalidate the experience. So I just I love that image. <laughs> like you can't you have to think and, and we all have our lizards. Right. And so we have to figure out what our lizards are and let go of them so that we can show up to this work for real. Um, And real repentance work requires actually changing and actually uh, becoming the kind of people that don't do the thing again. And it's hard. It is hard sometimes. Are countries or institutions kept from doing this hard work how do I say this without offending the entire bar of America? <laughs> I'll, I'll just have to ask. Often people are, or companies are advised to avoid responsibility because if you say, I did anything, then you're open to lawsuits, for instance. Mm-hmm. It seems yeah. like often uh, that it's the attorneys or the advisors of the law that keep people from truly making or companies from truly making repairs or even owning is that just a thing i hope that's not a thing we're stuck with there's got to be a way there is a way there are so many ways and when we operate from this place of fear and self-protection we harm everyone and we continue to perpetrate harms Um, a lot of the People that I spoke to who spend a lot of time consulting institutions that perpetrate harm and need to figure out now what um, and run straight into this, like, how can we spin this as a PR exercise? Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's always like, oh, no, what about the, you know, the media? Um, 
And they, you know, everybody that works on this stuff on the institutional level says basically the same thing, which is that the organizations and companies and institutions that own what they have done fully wind up coming out looking better. And so often what victims and survivors, I, I, I use, I tend to, to use victims as a, a default more general word. Uh, people who identify as survivors, it's usually a very personal decision and, um, and there's a lot that goes into that decision. So I, I tend to default to victims, but that victims of harm, most of the time, what they want is like a real apology, a direct, clear apology and acknowledgement of harm. And that the minute they get that, suddenly their relationship to the organization changes. So, for example, the University of Michigan uh, hospitals decided to change their malpractice approaches. They, instead of doing the default, which is, oh, whoops, now we're going to do everything we can to avoid litigation, which is sort of the default, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But they decided that the minute anything went wrong, they would show up at the patient's bedside. They would apologize. They would say, here's what went wrong. And now we're going to try to make sure that it never happens to anybody again, right? Step five, make different choices, right? begin to change, make different choices, uh, you know, and they would offer compensation, amends, right? and they would do all of these things right off the bat. And they changed their approach from self-protect, self-protect, deny, deflect, to care about the person who was harmed, and litigation dropped by 50%. Mm. Like People stopped suing because they felt cared for. And admit, and and they they knew that the institution had recognized their mistake or their failing in the process, right? And uh, Danielle Sered, who's an extraordinary um, woman who does a lot of work with uh, on restorative justice with people who have done violent crime, who have engaged in violence, I will say, uh, says that you know of the however many cases that she's worked on over the many, many, many years of her career, uh, the thing that she has seen that every single victim of violent crime wants is to know that this thing will never happen to anybody else. Hmm. And I think that's probably true of harm in institutions too. But the minute you show up and say, we are here and we acknowledge that we absolutely bungled this and sent you to a donor that we knew was going to sexually harass you. Um, And then we shuttled your complaint when you went to complain to HR and we acknowledge that and we're really sorry. And here is how we've changed our systems uh, on several levels to make sure that neither of these harms are going to happen again. And we acknowledge the breach of trust and we're going to pay for your therapy, right? And we care about you. That becomes a very different conversation than stop bothering us, right? Hmm. You know? So as a rabbi mm-hmm. and, and as a public figure, so people do write to you <laughs> or tweet you or whatever it might be, <laughs> yeah. but also just interpersonally, what do you see spiritually happening with people who decide 
I am going to own what I've done and go through because it's not easy and it may be publicly embarrassing or whatever it might be. What do you see spiritually happening to someone who who will own and go through that process? Oh, it's so powerful and so freeing. Here, here is what I have seen in other people, and I experience it myself, honestly, because I, you know, <laughs> I have made repentance work something of a spiritual practice, and um, so I, you know, I, I, this is what people tell me, and it tracks on my own experience too. Um, the first part is really hard. And getting to the part, the work of articulating the harm is really hard because you have to cross this sort of cognitive dissonance, this bridge between the story of I'm like the nice person who means well and always does right and is like a really, you know, just decent human being. Because we've oh. all we've all heard the non-apology apologies. I'm sorry you offended by the, as you put it, the, the, the perfectly harmless, well-intentioned thing I did. Right. But we all, because we all want to tell the story that we're the good guy. Uh-huh. And it's really, really tempting to hold on to that. And the hard part in so many ways is crossing that bridge into owning <laughs> whether we wanted to or not, we were a harm doer. And we really did something that was bad for somebody else to own it and to find the words to name that is really difficult. And that is some of the hardest stuff is just even pulling up the, the acknowledgement and the language and the real language. Right. And, uh, you know, again, like the, we call it the nefesh, the the accounting of the soul that is sort of the pre work before confession. Um, that's agonizingly painful, and then you pull up this language, and then you do this confession step, and it feels so scary and so vulnerable, and you feel so just anxious about it, and then you feel free. Mm. And, and this is you, this is before someone says I forgive you or anything. Oh, forgiveness is totally separate. Forgiveness is not your business. Somebody if they forgive you or not that is like keep your eyes on your own test. People <laughs> like your repentance work is not whether or not you have done good repentance work is independent of whether or not you are forgiven. And it's really really important that people understand that whether or not you are forgiven is not your business. If you have caused harm, your job is to worry about your repentance work and about making things as right as possible. And if somebody forgives you or not, it is not your business. And maybe they'll tell you and maybe they won't. But your job is to do the work that you can that is in your control. Mm. And so you do the confession step. And that already is so liberating because you have finally told the truth about yourself. And is that truth that you've been feeling deep down that still small voice from within that has been kind of murmuring, you know, you didn't do the right thing and you hear it and it isn't a good feeling to know that it's there. And when you finally release it and then you start to do the work, <laughs> the work is can be hard. 
the work can be uncomfortable, right? Facing why I made those choices or what's going on or. So it's important to, uh, to dig into that and figure that out or it will happen again. It oh, sounds yes. like. Oh, yes. And so if you have caused harm, you know, figuring out what needs to happen, whether that's unpacking it in therapy, whether that's calling your sponsor, whether that's showing up to your very first AA meeting, right? Or whether that's uh, getting into spiritual direction, whether that's um, starting on a journey of educating yourself about anti-racism, uh, you know, what, whatever the thing is that you did, you need to figure out um, what your path is to, uh, to grow and to change and to transform. And you got to start doing that work. That's hard. It can be hard for sure, but growing is hard. Okay. Um, but it's also, you know, it's an act of self-care. Mm. It's an act of love and care for other people too. Um, you want to be somebody that loves and cares for other people and doesn't hurt them, right? So this is part of what you do. It sounds like um, humility is a word in here. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good virtue for this practice. Let um, me ask you about the flip side, unless you mm -hmm. were going somewhere else with that. Yeah, flip. You talk, and I don't expect that you know your page numbers and what you said on individual pages, but somewhere <laughs> oh, no around idea. page 186, 187, 188, I'm sure it will spring to mind immediately. The concept that forgiveness we see as healing but it sometimes hides unresolved pain and issues. So you, you said forgiveness is separate. It's nobody's, it's not your business if you're the person who has done the harm. Mm -hmm. Let's be the person now who decides, do I forgive? Is it important mm -hmm. for me to give, to forgive? What do you mean about sometimes healing but can hide unresolved pain and other issues? So... When we are harmed, our first job is to attend to healing in whatever way we need to. Mm -hmm. And to give ourselves permission to let forgiveness be off the table for a minute. And, you know, maybe forgiveness will come. Maybe it won't. I, I mean, it depends on the nature of the harm, right? Um, there are serious serious harms for which maybe forgiveness needs to be off the table for a lifetime for a long time lifetime um uh, maimonides says well no <laughs> actually that's not true the jerusalem talmud says that one never for needs to forgive slander and judaism interprets that to mean that um it's slander because you can never fully repair that harm, right? You can never totally undo everybody who's heard that, right? You can never take back all of the the bad lies, right? And so I extend that to me to understand that if somebody harms you in a way that is permanent and traumatic and, you know, forever altering that you get to just take forgiveness off the table forever and maybe it will come organically and maybe it won't and that's okay 
And, and, and that it shouldn't be people saying, oh, you'll be free if you'll just forgive, just forgive. Oh, gosh, no. And we should never, ever, ever, ever pressure victims to forgive, ever. And even for for lighter things, certainly we should not be petty, right? And we should be really, really mindful of uh, seeing when we're kind of letting ourselves kind of play the victim or lording harm over somebody or, you know, we need to be attuned to when um, not forgiving is harming us. But um, we need to give ourselves a lot of space to have our own process and to let it be on its own timeline. Um, And always, always, if somebody is not doing sincere repentance work, we have no obligation to forgive in Judaism. And if somebody comes to us doing the sincere, right, they've done the real confession, they really started to change. They come to us with a really victim-centered amends question. How do I make this up to you? What do you need? And a really like us-centered apology where they look at us and they see us and they see how much we've been hurt and they care about us and they want to attend to us. Um, maybe forgiveness will flow naturally. I mean, that's the idea, right? That's the idea of the process is that it will kind of just go. But um, if that's not what happens, then, you know, it's okay to be kind of slow and curious and, um, and mindful about that instead of trying to force or coerce a process that's meant to be about the deepest parts of our heart. Um, step three, you talk about restitution and mm-hmm. accepting consequences. It's not just mm-hmm. here, uh, can I give you money? Can I donate to the cause? Can I buy you a new house? Can I? There are those things, but that's not the same as accepting consequences. Mm-hmm. Will you speak on that? Well, I, I believe that um, that accepting consequences is part of the restitution work. And... I, Actions have consequences. And the idea that I harmed you, I did all of these things, therefore I am automatically allowed to pretend that it's like it never happened is not how the world works. Um, Even if I did the sincere, true, wonderful work of repentance, and even if I forgive you, you may not be welcome back at game night ever again. <laughs> right? Um, or maybe you lost your opportunity to to be at this workplace. Or maybe um, you're never going to get that $6 million Netflix deal again. Sorry. Or maybe we don't want to listen to your music anymore. Or... Um, Maybe you need to accept that there are legal consequences to the choices you made and uh, humbly accepting that actions have consequences uh, is part of the work and trying to be grumpy and entitled about the fact that you are owed fill in the blank because, gee, you just did a nice confession proves that you have not yet learned that really what you did 
you've not yet understood the harm that you caused. Mm. Rabbi Ruttenberg, what happens with an institution? Because there's always a remove. Like sometimes the person who did the harm isn't the head of the institution. And I'm not singling out any single church, but there's been a lot of news lately for the last two decades about abuse of spiritual positions in sexual abuse with children or others. So how does an institution that says we have, we have strictures against this and the very commandments of our belief is against this, how can they go as an institution accept some responsibility or does that all have to be on the individual perpetrator? How, how, how does that work? So Kelly Clark was, was a lawyer who, who modeled repentance beautifully in his own life, who did a lot of work representing victims of various institutions like the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Churches. And um, he talked about institutions of trust, talked about how often institutions wanted to claim individuals as one of their own, as representing them whenever they did something good. But whenever someone who was a counselor or an employee or a teacher or a priest under the auspices of that institution, the minute they did something bad, Zoop, you know, they cut and run in the middle of the night. And institutions have a moral obligation to respond to the trust that people put in them. If they want people to hold a certain amount of trust in them as their church, as their school, as their university, as etc., then they have an obligation morally to to respond in in repentance work when that trust is violated. So I believe personally that both the individual who causes harm and the institution um, that was holding people's trust are, are obligated to repentance work in this case. So yes, even if let's say a, a minister or a priest in a church um, who's no longer there, uh, did something terrible, the organization still has an obligation to do repentance work, to respond to victims, to attend to their needs, to do amends work, and critically to do the transformation work that involves creating systems so that that harm cannot be repeated again. Mm. So how can an organization do this because it's going to it's going to in some cases change hundreds and hundreds of years of ways of doing things it is the same kind of work that that everybody else has to do and it's the same steps uh sure berkovitz runs sacred spaces she's a psychologist and a lawyer and her work is focused on helping jewish organizations create structures that are safer around mm -hmm. sexual abuse in the Jewish world. And she says, you know, Jewish organizations love this thing where they want to do the, like, the last steps. 
of repentance. They want to say like, look, we are making different choices. Look at our new systems. Um, look, we apologized and we're making different choices. And they they don't want to do the first steps. <laughs> and they have this sort of feeling that if you do the first steps, they make you look bad. Um, and they don't, they forget that the first steps make you look really good. That when you own it, when you say, in fact, we did this thing. In fact, we made it possible for a perpetrator to teach in our school. In fact, we, you know, ignored complaints. In fact, we da da da. You help to restore people's trust because you're opening up that door of transparency, right? That people know, people talk amongst themselves. And mm. the minute the institution is saying, yeah, we know too, and we're going to name names, and we're going to be with you on this journey, that that trust starts to come back. But transparency is the only way through. What does it take to change? In some ways, the first step Rabbi Ruttenberg described is the most difficult, naming and owning harm. We've all seen half apologies or PR statements that seem to miss the point. And I guess if we are, if I am, serious about changing for the better, I'll need to walk through all of the steps, not just the first one or two. Thanks to Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg sharing her unique voice and her faith. If this episode sparked your interest or curiosity, check out her book on repentance and repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. Our episode was produced by Peter Ellison, with engineering and editing from Daniel Phillips. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and subscribe to the podcast and help spread the word. We'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts with us on our Facebook and Instagram pages at In Good Faith Podcast or our Twitter feed at In Good Faith Pod. Our email is ingoodfaith at byu.edu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.